Welcome to Multiply Church Lake Norman. I'm excited to be with you here today. The scripture says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Are you glad to be here today? I want to take you on a journey with me this morning. And as any great screenwriter or playwright would know, a good journey involves some backstory. So can we do a little bit of backstory together this morning? I want you to pretend with me that you are a Gentile Christian in the ancient city of Rome. We're talking first century AD 57. And you're a Christian believer and you heard the word of God preached to you from other Christians. And the church in Rome was started because of Jewish believers who heard the message of Jesus on the day of Pentecost and brought the word of God and the gospel of Jesus back to Rome to their synagogues. So at first, the church in Rome was started by Jewish believers, but now you as a Gentile and your Gentile believer friends have kind of outnumbered the Jewish believers in the city of Rome. And that's, that's to be expected because about 10 years prior, the emperor Claudius had expelled all Jews from the city of Rome. He didn't like how they were behaving, and so he got rid of them. But when he died about three years prior to AD 57, the Jewish believers started to come back into the city of Rome. And things got a little bit tense between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers because for Jews, their political stance was different than Gentiles. For, for Jews, their, their theology was different than their Gentile-believing counterparts. And things just continued to get uncomfortable until one day you finally began to have a little bit of hope because you've heard that the famous Apostle Paul had written a letter to the church that's going to answer a number of questions for you. It's going to answer how you're supposed to be Christian brothers with your Jewish friends who you don't always get along with. It's supposed to answer questions about theology because at this time, there's no Bible. There's no written word of God. You've heard about Jesus from your friends who told you, right? You heard about Jesus from people who were changed by him, but you don't know doctrine. You don't know how you're supposed to live. You don't know how you're supposed to, be, to act. Can you actually be saved even though you lived a life of sin? This is where we find the first century church in Rome at the time of Paul's letter to the Romans. And church, over the next 16 weeks, we're going to embark upon an exegetical study of the book of Romans together, taking it chapter by chapter to really figure out what it says. Now, by a show of hands, who's ever heard the word exegetical before? Okay, so most of you have not. Let me explain what that means a little bit. It's different than what we normally would preach, typically like a topical sermon, right? A topical sermon is like, say, uh, on marriage. We would take the concept and the idea of marriage and be like, what does the Bible say from Genesis to Revelation about marriage, right? What, what, what does the Bible tell us about this topic? But when we study exegetically, it's different. We take a book, 
we go chapter by chapter, sometimes verse by verse, and we dig into it a little bit deeper. We're not necessarily approaching the text with a topic. We're letting the text guide us to the topic. Does that make sense? And so when we study it, we have to know a little bit more about it than we would for a normal series. We have to know a little bit about the authorship. Who wrote it? Who was it originally for? I'll tell you something that surprised you. When Paul wrote Romans, he wasn't thinking about you, right? We need to know who, who was it for? What was going on historically at the time? What was going on politically? What was the social climate of the day in which it was written? Romans is Paul's most theologically dense work. It's also his longest work. It's 7,114 words, and it is full of doctrine. The reason he wanted it to be so full of doctrine is because up until this time, uh, there's no evidence to lead us to believe that any of the OG apostles had ever been to Rome. The church in Rome was most likely founded by believers who heard the message on the day of Pentecost, as is told in Acts chapter 2. And so Paul was writing this to not just tell them kind of who he is, but tell them how to be a Christian 101, right? And so as we read this, it's my prayer that this book is going to challenge us and transform us. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Judah Crowder. I'm on the pastoral staff here at Multiply Lake Norman, and I get the honor of kicking off our series on Romans today. One thing that you can do to set yourself up for success to get the most out of this series is if you'll read the chapter two or three times during the week leading up to the Sunday. Another thing that we've offered um, is uh, on our YouTube page. Each week, we're going to put out an audio reading of one of our staff members reading the chapter for you. So if you don't like to read yourself, you can listen to it. I highly rec recommend doing that because in 30 or 40 minutes, we're not going to be able to go into all the details of the chapter. So if you come already having an idea of the structure, it's going to save you a lot of time and help you get the most out of it. When we study a topic or excuse me, when we study a passage exegetically, often a theme throughout the text will emerge. So when Paul was writing this, it's not like he just put a bunch of random things on paper. There's several themes. And as a pastoral staff, we've discerned the theme for our church to be, be transformed. And our theme verse comes from Romans chapter 12. It's Romans 12, 1 through 2. And it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there's several key phrases in here that give us an idea of the overall trajectory of Romans. And those phrases are living sacrifice. Do not conform. Be transformed. So if that gives you a little bit of a hint of what Romans is going to be like, in a word, it's going to be uncomfortable. I don't like to think of being a living sacrifice. I don't necessarily like to think of myself as standing out or, or not conforming. And transformation hurts, right? So these are challenging phrases, but let me ask you a question today, just as a precursor to this series. Are you willing to be transformed by the word of God, even if it involves discomfort? Remember who Paul was writing this to. He was writing this to two bickering groups of Christians, 
right? Uh, Christian Gentiles and Christian Jews. So he had to address some things. And as such, it's going to hurt us as well. Because how many know some of the problems that they faced in first century Christianity we're still facing today? Namely, the problem of sin in our lives, right? So if you're willing to be a little bit uncomfortable, I think that we can all grow a little bit closer to Jesus through this series. Pastor Zach has said, too many times we are defending the word instead of simply teaching the word. This series is about teaching and learning from the book of Romans. It's about studying it and seeking to discover what God has for us as a group, as believers, as Christian husbands, mothers, wives, brothers, sisters, friends. It's not about bringing our desires to the text. We're not seeking to transform the text. We're seeking to be transformed by the text. We're not seeking to transform the text. We're seeking to be transformed by the text. Transformation requires vulnerability. It requires humility. And it requires surrender. But we're on this journey together. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you uh, for the words that you have given us through Romans. And I pray that as we come today to your word, you would help it not to return void that we would be filled with your spirit and that we would look a little bit more like Jesus when we leave than when we came in in Jesus name. Amen. So if you've ever read the chapter, the first chapter of Romans, there's a lot that we could unpack, but they gave me 30 minutes. They didn't give me the three and a half hours that I asked for. And so everybody can say, amen. (laughs) When I was in seminary, they told me if there's not three points in the sermon, people can't get saved. So the three, that was a joke. The three points are transformation involves community, transformation involves faith, and transformation involves surrender. When I approached Romans chapter 1, I knew that the theme that Paul was kind of working through that we're going to highlight is this idea of transformation. So I read the chapter and I pulled out these these three things that I think will benefit us in the overall series, but most importantly, in our daily lives. Number one, transformation involves community. After his introductory remarks at the beginning of Romans, which were actually a little bit longer than was customary for first century letters because the church didn't know Paul. So after those initial remarks, he writes in Romans 1, 11 through 12, I long to see you so that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. So, Paul, never been to Rome to visit this church, didn't found it. And one of the first things he says is he wants to visit so that he can share in mutual encouragement with the church. This surprised me. The first part of the scripture doesn't surprise me. He says, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Right, okay, if Billy Graham came here, if he was still alive and he came here to preach today, you would expect that he would want to give you some type of spiritual gift to make you strong, right? Because in our minds, it's like we're, we're down here and then, you know, those great leaders of the faith are up here, right? And so we would want that. Well, that's kind of how the Christians reading this letter would have thought of. Paul was like the goat, Okay, he's the greatest of all time and they're getting a letter from him. This is a big deal. So it's no surprise that he wants to give them this spiritual gift. But what surprises me and what really 
interests me in this phrase is that he highlights the importance of mutual encouragement by simply being present with others of like-minded faith. Paul isn't looking just to impart upon them. He's looking to benefit as well as he grows in community with them. He seeks this mutual encouragement in his faith by being present with other believers, just like the infant Christians in Rome should. Transformation involves community. It doesn't matter if you are a brand new believer or you have a PhD in theology and everyone around you asks you for advice. You need to be transformed in and through community. Whether you've been a believer for 30 minutes or 30 years, your faith and your commitment to being transformed continually by the work of Christ in your life will only be strengthened when you surround yourself with others who share your faith and your commitment to Christ Jesus. In community, we're a collective group with a singular goal, transformation in and through the work of Christ on a cross. Transformation is a communal act just as much as it is an individual act. Oftentimes we think of being transformed inwardly, right? Okay, so as a Christian, I'm transformed when I decide to allow myself to be transformed into the image of Christ, right? That's when I'm transformed. But I learn what it actually looks like to be transformed by being in a community that is moving towards transformation, Right? I'm going to say that again. Transformation is as much a communal act as it is an individual act. As an individual, you make the decision to allow yourself to be transformed into the image of Christ. But as a community, we learn together what it means to be transformed into the image of Christ as we support one another in that pursuit. There are things that you will learn when you're living in community that will be far easier to learn in community than on your own, right? One of these examples is just reading scripture, okay? So to step out of Romans for just a minute, to illustrate a point in Romans, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. It says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That may make sense to me on paper. Okay, great. Rejoice always. I got that. Give thanks in all circumstances. I got that. Pray continually. Yeah, no problem. Right? I can remember to rejoice always until I go out and I get stuck in traffic on 77 and I'm running late. Right? Then I forget all about that. Why? Because I've read the text, but I haven't necessarily been transformed by the text. It's in a community where we can learn how to walk through these difficult passages of Scripture in real time. We set ourselves up for success when we surround ourselves with individuals who possess the same goal that we do. Um, in January of 2021, my family and I got a devastating call from our friends. We were living in Florida at the time, and uh, they called us from North Carolina and said that the night before, their 17-year-old son had been killed in a car accident just a few months before his high school graduation. And they were very, very close to us. My mom actually homeschooled their son for years. And um, it really hit us hard. And I had 10 hours in the car from Florida to North Carolina to try to figure out how me as a pastor could offer this woman who had lost her only son some type of hope, right? Because I knew 
what the Bible said. I knew that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. I knew that we're supposed to rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I knew those words, but I couldn't imagine how someone could actually do that. I wasn't transformed by them. I just knew them. And so I came up with nothing for that whole 10-hour car ride. As a pastor, what would I say? Because I had considered the situation to be hopeless. When I arrived at their house, I went inside, and I was surrounded immediately by probably 40 or 50 people who were all grieving. But when I finally saw Jackson's mom, I expected to see a woman who was distraught, who was crying, who was mourning her son, and I did. But what I didn't expect to see a woman who had not lost hope. That was the surprise for me. Because I knew when I saw her instantly, her attitude, her countenance, everything about her represented the fact that even though she was undergoing circumstances far greater than I could ever imagine, she refused to allow her attitude to reflect hopelessness because her hope was in a God who 2,000 years ago sacrificed his only son on a cross so her only son would not perish but have everlasting life. I saw throughout that whole situation her taking a step every day, not towards depression and hopelessness like I probably would have done, but towards hope and faith in God. In that moment, I recognized what Paul was talking about. I knew what the Bible said, but I was not transformed by it until I watched someone in my community go through a terrible situation and choose faith, choose to be hopeful. Just as transformation involves community, it involves faith. Romans 1, 16 through 17 is probably the most famous passage in all of Romans. Scholars have even claimed it to be the theme verse. Martin Luther called it the chief article of the whole Christian doctrine, which comprehends the understanding of all godliness. That means in Luther's mind, if you want to understand how to be godly, you need to understand Romans 1, 16 through 17. And it says... For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. There are several key motives in this passage that Paul returns through throughout the book of Romans that we'll want to know as we study this together. Those are believe, faith, righteousness, and most importantly, salvation is available to all who believe. Uh, A scholar that I've studied offers some great insight on what it means to believe. He writes, to believe is to put full trust in the God who justifies the ungodly by means of the cross and resurrection of Christ. Though intellectual assent cannot be excluded from faith, the Pauline emphasis is on surrender to God as an act of the will. As believers, we make the decision to be transformed when we put our faith in Christ, taking on the righteousness of of God. I want to read that again. This time, listen to where he talks about righteousness. Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, 
then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This phrase, the righteousness of God, is used by Paul nine times when he was writing the Bible. Eight of those nine times are in the book of Romans. So we know that salvation is for everyone who believes. Can I get an amen? Are you glad to be saved? Good. Salvation is for everyone who believes. But we know that somehow it's connected to righteousness, but not our righteousness. Not our abilities. And scholars have some different views on what this righteousness of God entails. I tend to align myself with Martin Luther in this particular passage. So for those of you who may or may not know, Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic monk who lived uh, from 1483 to 1546. He was one of the most influential figures in the Protestant Reformation. He studied the scriptures diligently as a monk, but he started to recognize that there were some things that his church was doing that wasn't biblical, right? Namely, in the, in the realm of self-righteousness and penance. So the Roman Catholic Church at the time believed that you could actually purchase your salvation, you could purchase your own soul back from purgatory. Now, that worked great for two people, the rich people and the Roman Catholic Church. It didn't work well for Luther because when he was reading the Bible, when he was studying Paul in Romans, he recognized that righteousness really it, it doesn't have to do with how much money you have. It doesn't have to do with how much uh, of, a, of, a, of a righteous life you have lived. Luther struggled with the idea that you could be saved by your own merit or your own righteousness. And eventually, after studying Romans 1, 16 through 17 for a great length of time, he made the discovery that our faith is connected to God's righteousness. Luther argued that God's righteousness in this context is not actually his righteous indignation or his harsh punishment for those who believe or for those who refuse to keep his law, but rather it's a free gift to those who believe and are transformed, not according to their works, but according to their righteousness and according to the righteousness of God bestowed upon them. In Luther's mind, the righteousness of God is a status given by God. He reflects on this breakthrough in his own account of his conversion. He writes, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by with which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. We are, uh, yeah, come on, that's a good passage. You can clap for that. On our own, our righteousness cannot save us. On our own, the best behavior that we could ever do will always fall short of the glory of God. 
the righteousness of God bestowed upon us through Jesus is what we're talking about here. To quote uh, Douglas Moo again, the gospel brings salvation because it, quote, manifests God's righteousness, a righteousness based on faith. The most transformative act that an individual can undergo is to accept the free gift of salvation paid for by the blood of Jesus, taking on the righteousness of God, and choosing to live a countercultural, kingdom-oriented life in the midst of a chaotic world. We're not saved by our own merit or transformed by our own actions. Salvation is when we put our faith in Jesus Our response is to allow us to be transformed into the likeness of God. Here's something that's interesting. Our right behavior as believers shouldn't be because we're scared of a punishment. Our right belief and right behavior as believers should be because we're in awe that a God who is perfect and sinless would send his son to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be saved. We live as close to the line in righteousness as we can because we want to honor the sacrifice of Jesus. We know that we're going to fall short every day, but that doesn't keep us from striving to get a little bit more like Jesus every single day because we recognize the sacrifice of God and we want to honor that in our own lives. We are saved because of the righteousness of God bestowed upon us when we surrender to him. In that sense, we can see that transformation, according to Paul in Romans 1, involves faith, but it also involves surrender. This is the uncomfortable part of the chapter. Remember I told you things were going to get a little squirmy? Okay, this is it. Interestingly, when we think about surrender, we don't think great positive thoughts unless we think of someone surrendering to us right like if someone's giving up something for us we're good with that but surrender always is uncomfortable it it requires that we give up something we don't want to let go of I'm a big like military history guy does anyone like military history at all okay so like five of you that's okay it's it's good there's a lot of great literature out there on military history the battle of Yorktown in 1781 does that ring a bell for anybody It should ring a bell for all of y'all because that's when the British surrendered to General George Washington, uh, which meant that we gained our independence, but it meant that they lost their colonies, right? How many know it was pretty uncomfortable for the British that day, right? When the Japanese surrendered to Douglas MacArthur at the end of World War II, it meant they lost their ability to have a standing army. That was actually tied to their identity as a nation, Surrender for the nation of Japan meant giving up their identity. Surrender is uncomfortable, awkward, and vulnerable. But most importantly, it involves giving up control. As Christians, there is a standard by which we are called to live in light of the grace we have received by the sacrifice of Jesus. Yes, we've been given grace and the forgiveness of our sins, but in light of God's sacrifice, we're called to live according to his standards, not our standards, not the world's standards, but Christ's standards. 
from Romans 1:18 all the way chapter through chapter 3 verse 20, Paul discusses the dominating forces of sin that impact every single person. That's 3 chapters. That means for 3 weeks we're going to be studying the dominating forces of sin that impact every human. The reason that he wanted to include such a lengthy description of this is probably because, remember, he had never been there. He didn't know these people. And he knew that later on in the letter, he's going to really expound upon the righteousness of God. But in order for us to recognize that we need God's righteousness, we have to first recognize that we are born into sin. We're fallen individuals. And so Paul wants the church to recognize their own fallen nature and accept God's righteousness. In the words of Scottish theologian James Moffat in his book, Grace in the New Testament, he writes, Only those who are prepared to acknowledge that they are unworthy can put faith in the giver of grace. You and I do not deserve grace, but God gives it to us freely. You and I don't deserve the righteousness of God, but God gives it to us freely, to all who would accept him. And Paul is about to really dig in to uh, some really, really gnarly things. And in Romans 1.21, he says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. I want you to know that the people that Paul has a problem with in this passage are not non-believers. The people he's addressing in this passage are people who know God, but they do not glorify him as God, nor do they give thanks to him. They are aware of the truth, but they've rejected it. They're aware of the truth, but they do not allow it to transform their hearts, their minds, and their actions. They refused to be transformed because they were unwilling to surrender. And things only get worse for them. Romans 1, 24 through 32 says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but approve of those who practice them. I would like to just give a huge shout-out to Pastor Zach for giving this passage of Scripture to me to preach the first time that I get to talk to you today. Thanks, Pastor Zach. Appreciate you. That's awesome. I told some of my friends, I was like, I get to preach on Sunday. They're like, yay, what are you preaching for? I'm, I'm like, Romans 1. They were like, ooh, nice. Just so you know, I'm normally the guy that likes to preach on the joy of the Lord is your strength, right? Encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you're doing. But 
we got to preach the full gospel. And in Romans, it's going to get uncomfortable. How can we avoid the same pitfalls of the individuals Paul speaks about in this passage? It's really important that we notice he's not talking about people who don't believe. He's talking about people who know the truth and they refuse to make the hard decisions to live according to the truth. They refuse to allow their life to be transformed because they're complacent and they're comfortable. Transformation is becoming something you're not. The way we avoid ending up like the people that Paul talks about is simple but hard. It's to be transformed through surrender. Merriam-Webster talks about the linguistic implications of transformation. The dictionary says, Transformation is an operation that converts, as by insertion, deletion, or permutation, one grammatical string, such as a sentence, into another. Transformation significantly alters that which is already there. When you live a life transformed by Jesus through surrender, your sentence structure changes. Your outlook changes. Your actions change. The words you say change. Why? Because you have taken on the righteousness of God. Too often as Christians, we think we can live a life that honors God, but is far from a life transformed by Jesus. We want to serve God, but we don't want to change our actions. We want the Bible to say what we want it to say, and so we pick and choose what we like. We don't want to change our actions because that's our nature. But in order to be transformed, we must acknowledge the problem of sin in our lives, repent, and move towards sanctification. Uh, from the ages of 8 to 12, I was involved in junior Bible quiz. If you have any kids of that age, I highly recommend JBQ. During this time in my life, I studied the uh, Bible quiz questions religiously, and I could still uh, quote many of them today. That's when I first met Mr. Brian King some 20 years ago now, as I, we all knew him, Mr. JBQ. He ran that thing, and uh, it was a well-oiled machine. But one of my favorite questions that I would always buzz in real quick and answer is the question, what is sanctification? And the answer was sanctification is being separated from sin and set apart to serve God. We all want to be separated from sin and serve God. But some of us don't want to make the choice to actually be transformed through surrender. So we want to serve God, but in reality, if we're not making that choice to move, move towards transformation via surrender, we don't, in reality, want to be separated from our sin. We like it. It's fun. I'm going to be straightforward with y'all. There are passages in the Bible I wish had never been written. We don't have to like all of the things that we're supposed to do, but that's God's standard. There would be no act of surrender if that was my standard already. My standard submits to God because I want to be transformed through surrender. Some of us don't want to be separated from our sin. Or maybe we think to ourselves, okay, I'm not committing any of the big sins that Paul talks about, right? Okay, my sex life is honorable. I don't hate God. I'm a good person. We like to pick 
and choose. Like we like to highlight things. Okay, this person is doing this. That's a big sin. This person is doing this. That's a big sin. But notice that in the same passage that Paul discusses these big sins, he talks about gossip, not showing mercy and being envious. I said this in the first service. I didn't know if I was going to say this in the second first, uh, second service. If you want to boycott Target, go for it. But are you being gracious? Are you being envious? Are you complaining? Yeah, the big sins, they're there. But literally the next paragraph, Paul talks about things we all do every single day because all sin separates us from God. And like Paul discusses at the end of Romans, over time, sin leads to a depraved mind. That doesn't mean it just changes our mood or our thought process. When I was researching this passage of scripture, I thought it was interesting that Paul connects willful sin to the depravity of the mind. And so I looked into it and I found a, a researcher named Gary Wilson. And during his life, he researched anatomy, physiology, and pathology. And he wrote a book. I can't recommend it because I haven't read it. It's kind of a serious title. It's Your Brain on Porn. And I was researching the overall, like, structure of the book. And I found it interesting that Paul, a first century Christian, and Gary Wilson, a 21st century atheist, came to the same conclusion. Sin changes the brain. It leads to the depravity of the mind. Wilson's research highlighted that the actual structure of the brain changes as it's flooded with unnatural amounts of dopamine. When you give the flesh what it wants, it leads to the depravity of the mind. Romans 1.28, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. We like to pick on God a lot of times when we read scripture. So when I read this for the first time, I'm going to be like, why would God give them over to a depraved mind? But the precursor to that, they knew God and they chose otherwise. They chose not to surrender. And that is what directly contributed to the depravity of their mind. Romans is going to challenge us, friends. That's what it's supposed to do. If you can read the whole Bible and not be challenged to transform your life, you are either God or you're not paying very much attention to the book. And out of those two, I would imagine it's probably the latter. <laughs> We're not required to be perfect. We're not under the law. The requirement for perfection is gone. The requirement is to live a life transformed by faith in Jesus and take on his righteousness. What does that look like? That looks like making the commitment and the decision every single day to move towards sanctification. It looks like me deciding that tomorrow when I wake up, I'm going to be a little bit more like Jesus than I was today. That's what sanctification is. 
It's making decisions every day to put on the righteousness of God and avoid making the mistake of those in Romans 121 who although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to them, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. If you stand with us all across the room, I'd appreciate that. Friends, what is God going to ask you to surrender? What element of your life does not line up with his word? In what way are you not honoring the righteousness of God that he has bestowed upon you? How can we be sanctified and look a little bit more like Jesus tomorrow than we did today? If I asked if there was something that you needed to surrender, every hand in the room should go up. Because we're not perfect. All of us are in need of sanctification. Every single one of us. And I can think of no better way to kick off our series on Romans and on transformation than to give you an invitation to surrender fully to the giver of grace and take on the righteousness of God. We're called to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's how we can bring change and hope to a dark world. If there is something in your life today that does not align itself with the teachings of Scripture, I want to encourage you, take on the righteousness of God by taking one more step today than you did yesterday. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to surrender. I just want to ask that you would be with each and every single person in this congregation as we study the book of Romans. I pray that our hearts would be softened and that we would surrender to you everything in our life so that you can transform us to be more like Jesus than we ever have been before, in Jesus' name. Before we close our service, I wanna give you an opportunity if you've never accepted Jesus to accept him as your Lord and Savior. Can we all pray this together? Dear Jesus, Dear Jesus I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I am a sinner. I, am a sinner. I need you to save me. Help me to live wide awake to your love and fully alive to my purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Multiply Lake Norman. We'll see you next week. Keep loving Jesus and changing the world.